Well, today we are continuing our series through 1 Timothy, and I've entitled our message, A Trustworthy Testimony. Now, today's passage is about Paul's testimony of conversion. It's a shorter version. The longer version is from the book of Acts. But 1 Timothy gives us all the brass tacks, all the main points, all the main facets of Paul's testimony. And i got to begin by dispelling the tendency to dismiss a passage like this. So before you pull out your ESPN or check your social media, you know, I, I think it's tempting to not pay attention to this message. And here's why. For a lot of you, you're thinking, well, that's the Apostle Paul. I'm not Paul. You know, I don't have a testimony like that. I'm not called to be an apostle. I wasn't a persecutor of Jesus, so that's great. Amen. But I can't relate to Paul's testimony. Well, today I want to show you from the Word of God why there are areas of Paul's testimony that apply to all of us. The, the second tendency or the reason why people want to dismiss this passage is because it's all too familiar. So if you're new to the church, maybe you haven't heard Paul's testimony. But if you are if you've been in the church, you're probably like, I saw that already about Saul. So, you know what? I've seen it, heard it. What's new? Let's look at what's happening online, right? Let's look at what's for lunch. And I want to challenge you today because Paul's testimony, and in the end, I will build up to this, that I want you to see today that there are facets, three areas of Paul's testimony that apply to all of us, three areas that make every testimony trustworthy. But what I want you to walk away with, that while some of you might have a pretty crazy testimony, even like myself, you know, coming from a pretty messed up background and coming to Christ, while that may be true for some of you, the majority of you have what you would say as a boring, ordinary testimony. And I want to argue today that actually your ordinary testimony, your normal testimony is a greater miracle, is more amazing than Paul's. Okay, so we got to get there. All right, let's go. Point number one, the first aspect of Paul's testimony that applies to every single believer that makes your testimony trustworthy is God's grace. God's grace. So point number one is God's grace in Paul's calling. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this first point is from verses 12 to 14. God's grace in Paul's calling. So in verses 12 to 14, I want you to see God's grace. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I want you to see God's grace. God's grace conveyed through Paul being strengthened. God's grace conveyed through God seeing in Paul his potential rather than his performance at that time. God seeing in Paul the man who he would be once Jesus 
met him and changed his life once he met Jesus and how that mercy flowed towards Paul. Now here in verse 12 to 14, Paul speaks of God's grace towards him despite his previous life mission. But why does he begin by talking about God-given strength here? Remember, he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is facing the challenge of false teaching. Timothy was tasked with taking this church that was under the threat of false teaching and turning the ship in the right direction, if you will. And here, Paul is reminding Timothy, Timothy, when you try to go about taking on these false teachings, when you try to correct these false ideas, when you try to establish godly leadership, when you try to bring change about in this church, you need the power of God. Remember your source of power. And so Paul begins with a thanksgiving to God for giving Paul strength, right? It's, it's God through Christ Jesus that gave Paul strength. Now apply to us today, not all of us are called to full-time ministry like Timothy nor Paul, but we are called to serve the Lord by exercising our spiritual gifts. We are called to fulfill the Great Commission. Every Christ follower is given the Great Commission to be disciple-makers. But the power for disciple-making comes from God. And how we receive God's power, yes, it's from the Spirit, but how do you think we receive God's power? you got to ask for it. Now, how do you ask for it? P. That's a P word, prayer. All right, prayer. Because when you pray, it's a posture of reminding yourself when you turn before God and say, God, I, I need you. Right? If you don't pray, it's not that the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you, but you just won't re- be reminded. It won't be in the forefront of your mindset to think, okay, I need to ask for divine resources to do spiritual work. You need spiritual resources to work with, work with people's souls, right? And so a prayerless church is really a powerless church, and a prayerless servant is a powerless servant. <clears throat> Prayer is a gateway to the power that we need for effective service And this is convicting for myself because one of my greatest areas of weakness is prayer. When it comes to various strengths and weaknesses and in terms of ministry, I'm the person that might preach first and study first and pray after I write my sermon, right? Oh, God, now that I've done all the work, I pray that it would be effective. Rather than getting on my knees and praying for anointing, even as I put pen to paper or my fingertips to the laptop, right? And so... It's no surprise, since prayer is one of my personal weaknesses, that historically, prayer is also your weakness. Now, I know that there's some of you in here are, are prayer warriors, but most of you are more prayer worriers. You worry a lot because you don't pray. I'm like that. I worry a lot, and i got to remember, I need to pray. Our church, we would say that there's, there's certain things that we're strong in, And we like to be in the black, right, financially speaking. So God's been very gracious to us in teaching and doctrine and even giving. But every single year, we're in the red when it comes to prayer. We have a prayer deficiency given the size of our church and how much attention we give both corporately and in our individual lives to prayer. Now, Hanley, this passage is not about prayer, so why are you talking to me about prayer? Because this week we had our... Uh, three-day pastor's retreat 
here on campus all day, and we decided to add a fifth indicator, right? So we have four indicators of a vibrant disciple maker, which is to love passionately, live authentically, give generously, go courageously. And, and, we, and, and, and we just felt led by God that we need to add pray fervently. Pray fervently because we are a church that lacks prayer. Now, once again, I know there's some of you who pray all the time. But we are a church that needs prayer because prayer is our source of power. When we pray, we tap into the divine storehouses where we ask the Lord to pour upon us the power we need for effectiveness. And I think this is why Paul begins with a reminder saying, he's saying, in a sense, I thank him, almost like a prayer, I thank him who's given me strength. Paul reminds Timothy, my strength is from the Lord, your strength will be from the Lord, from Christ Jesus the Lord, that we need prayer. And then, now let's get into the meat of the message in verse 12. It says, because, why is Paul thankful that God strengthened him? Because he judged me faithful and appointed me to serve him, right? Now, this is a little confusing because Paul was a terrorist. He made it his aim to kill Christians, to persecute Christians. So how is it that at the point of his conversion or prior to his conversion, how is it that God judged him faithful? It's not that Paul was already faithful prior to his conversion. It's not that Paul was faithful at the exact point of his salvation because Paul's the one to teach us that salvation is by grace through faith alone and not by works. In fact, Paul, previously named Saul, at the point of his conversion, he was actually on his way to persecute more Christians. And Jesus had to knock him off his horse, blind him, confront him, and say, Saul, why are you persecuting me by persecuting my people? So faithful here refers to Paul's worth in God's sight. Paul was amazed that God would look at Paul and say, you have no idea your potential. The same passion, the same hatred that you have for Christians can turn into passion and love for Christ and for Christians. The same devotion and Kobe Bryant mentality and Mamba mentality that you have towards killing Christians, you can have towards proclaiming the gospel to save Christians. And he himself would be a martyr for Christ. Amazing that, that God would then entrust him. This, this, in our days, it would be a criminal. This terrorist, this persecutor, this blasphemer, that, that God would entrust him with the gospel. So Paul says, I thank God that he didn't judge me as a blasphemer send me directly to hell, but instead he judged me faithful on the grounds of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why it's a Christ Jesus. To, to paraphrase Augustine, Augustine said, quote, God, and this is a paraphrase, God does not choose a person who is worthy, <clears throat> but the act of choosing him makes him worthy, end quote, or end paraphrase. You see, the idea is that once God sets his heart upon you, that's what makes you qualified, right? It's Christ. It's all in Christ. It's God's grace. Prior to his conversion, I mentioned that he persecuted Christians, that he tells this in, us this in verse 13. Notice verse 13, which we read. He says, 
though formerly I was, and look at how he describes himself, a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. Insolent opponent. Some of your translations uh, refers to insolent opponent as a violent persecutor, an arrogant opposer of Christ. But God gave him a new identity and a new calling in life. Even though Paul deserved to be judged by God, God called him to be an apostle, but it didn't start that way. You know, if you have Acts chapter 7 and 8, you have the story of Paul prior to his conversion, once named Saul. And so before, we got to start preaching now, stop teaching, okay? Before, Holy Spirit help me, we get, before we had the grace, before we were ever graced by the eloquence of Stephen A. Smith, there was the original Stephen A. the evangelist. Stephen the evangelist was preaching the gospel in Acts. And there was Saul breathing threats. And did you know that Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that Saul as a young man, this is Paul prior to his conversion, was the one that gave approval for the execution of Stephen? Imagine that. He's the one that said, yeah, go ahead, kill him. And you know Acts chapter 7 tells us that when they took Stephen to martyr him and they were stoning him, that Acts chapter 7 says they took Stephen's garments and laid them at the foot of Saul. Can you imagine? There he stood, Saul, reaching down and grabbing the bloodstained fabric of Stephen. Little would he know, how could he, in his ignorance, that one day very soon, Paul himself would be a martyr. That he and Stephen are more alike than different. That Saul himself would become Paul, a preacher of the gospel. That their lives weaved together in the tapestry of God's sovereign plan. Can you imagine even more the reconciliation in heaven between Stephen and Paul? And Paul telling Stephen, I was a blasphemer. I accused you of blasphemy, of being a blasphemer, but I was the blasphemer. I was ignorant, Stephen. Please forgive me. And Joseph comes around, right? Good old Joseph from the Old Testament, puts his arm around Saul says, or Paul says, don't worry. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Can you imagine that reconciliation? Look at the transformation. Once a blasphemer of Christ, now a proclaimer of Christ. Once a persecutor, now one who rejoices in being persecuted for Christ. How many times does he tell us in his letters, rejoice in, in, in our suffering for Christ? Once an insolent opponent, don't ever call someone that. I just read that. I'm like, huh, I've never called someone in life, you insolent person. I mean, I guess my vocabulary is not that high, right? So once a violent oppressor of Christianity, now one of the most prominent champions for Christ, one who martyred Christians, now soon after, Paul would one day become a martyr for Christ. Notice verse 14, we see the God, when God shows his grace towards us, his grace overflows. In other words, when God directs his mercy towards us, his mercy is an overflow of his grace. And then notice, 
It says faith and love in Christ. So when God decided to, to pour out his grace upon Paul, that grace flowed out as mercy because Paul deserved to be punished and judged. And that mercy brought Paul into the faith and love that he would only experience in the person of Christ. In his union with Christ, he learned faith. He went from one who did not understand the law and who was trying to say, in the name of the Old Testament law, I'm persecuting Christ and Christians, and that law turned into true faith. He went from one who was driven by anger and hatred to one who now is one of love because of his location now in Christ. Put another way, true faith and love are found in the sphere of Christ. So here's Saul in his previous life in the sphere of Satan doing the work of the enemy and Jesus takes him and says, you're mine now. I'm taking you out of the kingdom of darkness and putting you into the sphere of faith and love in Christ. Now what's the difference between mercy and grace? I think it's different. Grace is a gift that you cannot earn and grace can be simple right? You go down to the, your local coffee shop that you have a gift card for, and so you'll go there, and you put it forward, and you say, okay, can I get, you know, these two drinks, right? You're getting some drink for you, one for your friend, and the person, person says, you know what? There's nothing on your gift card. Like, what? No, I didn't use it. I just got this. There's nothing on your gift card, but then the barista says, you know what? You know, um, my dad's the owner of this house, uh, this coffee house, and it's on the house, Someone's paying for the, for the coffee, say it's on the house, right? That's grace. So, so we speak of salvation as God's grace. Yes. Yes. But when you walked into that coffee shop, it's not like you did anything wrong, right? And so people can show you simple grace. Grace is basically a gift that you don't deserve, that you cannot earn. So if you said to the barista, hey, can I get back there and wash like a mug for you or something? Can I like, you know, you know pull a shot, you know, or something for you? Can I? No, 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 no. It's on the house. It's on the house, right? What's mercy? Mercy is when you know, when you know for certain that you are guilty and deserve punishment and deserve judgment. And someone says, you know what, I'll take that punishment for you. It's on the house. My father owns this house, and I have the right to lay down my life for you. It's on the house. What do you mean it's on the house? Who's paying for it? I am. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to show you mercy. You deserve judgment. Someone's got to pay for it, but I'll pay for you. Right? That's the mercy of Christ. That's the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is the gift that you receive that you don't deserve, that you cannot earn. It's grace. But mercy is when we deserve the punishment of God and we realize, when we realize that we deserve to be punished and judged, then that grace turns the corner and becomes mercy. You understand that the grace, the grace of God is extended generally to every human being ever since after Noah's flood when God put a bow in the, in the sky and said, I'll never flood the earth again. Common grace upon all. But it's the believer when the Holy Spirit touches you that says, oh, I've taken for granted this free gift of God's grace. And when you receive Christ, his grace takes more direct distinction and turns into mercy in your life. 
And so for Paul, he understood not only the grace of God, but that the grace took form in mercy. And that mercy played out in faith and love in Christ. Now that sets us up for point number two. So the first point we see is God's grace in Paul's calling. Paul couldn't believe that God would call him to be an apostle. But God's grace was in his calling. But secondly, we see God's mercy in Paul's salvation. Now, mercy is already mentioned once before in this passage, but now in, in verses 15 and 16, we see the mercy once again. Notice in verse 15, it says, This saying is trustworthy. Now, this is a repeated phrase you're going to see in throughout um, 1 Timothy. So a lot of my titles of the, of the messages I preach will be trustworthy something. Right? This saying is trustworthy as opposed to the false teachers or false teaching. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then he lays out the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. What's the reason you receive mercy for? That in me, as the foremost of sinners... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Paul, he understands God's grace, but that's what I mean. He says, but God's grace, it turned into mercy because he recognized that out of all the people in the world that would deserve God's judgment, it would be him. It would be him. So Paul begins verse 15 with a statement. We see repeated, this, word, this saying is trustworthy, and then, of course, it's trustworthy and, and needs to be deserving of full acceptance because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came in the world not to save righteous people, but to save sinners. Every human being is a sinner, but the grace of God is extended, and when you receive the grace of God, then it turns into mercy because that mercy then is applied upon you, and you will be saved. You will be de declared righteous. Not only is it salvation eternally, it's not just a ticket to heaven, but he changes your life. You see, Paul understood this. He was late to the ballgame. He was late to the ballgame. He was late to the early church mission. Did you know that? You know, the first quarter he, he starts the game on the wrong team, wearing the wrong jersey. Right? He's, he's persecuting Christians in the first quarter. But right at halftime, Jesus says, time out. Coach Jesus says, time out. Pulls him aside, you're on the wrong team. You're on the wrong team. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to change you. Put on this jersey instead. Put on Christ." And now you're playing for my team. Right? That's what Jesus said. He was late to the ball game, but it's never too late. And because he was late to the ball game, and because his first quarter was, was spent doing evil towards Christ, he understood that Christ was, perf was perfectly patient towards him, that Christ was merciful. That's how Christ works. He changes our lives midway through the game. It's never too late. You could say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm 60 already. It's never too late to grow in Christ. It's never too late to come to Christ. Because he came to save sinners. Nobody, nobody is righteous. We become righteous only in Christ. Only in Christ. So you can spend the first quarter of your life up to 25 years old. Then you can go second quarter of your life to 50 years old. And third quarter, and by God's grace, a fourth quarter... And you could be towards the end and God can turn you. 
God can turn you. And maybe you spent the first three quarters of your life cursing religion or the existence of God. God can still turn your heart. And you know what? The longer that he takes, the more you will proclaim, oh, God was gracious to me. He could have just let me go. He could have just said, you know what? You're going to die in two years. I'll just let you go. It's too late. But instead, can you imagine that? You go into heaven and say, God, I'm so sorry. I acted ignorantly for the first three quarters of my life, and finally you saved me. Why didn't you get me earlier? But I got you. Right? I mean, Jesus is in the business of saving sinners. If he was in the business of only saving righteous people, nobody would be saved. Right? If he was in the business of saving righteous people, nobody would need him. That's why the saying is trustworthy. It will always be trustworthy. You see, Paul, when he says, I am the foremost of sinners, he's not being, uh, this is not false humility. Right? He's not saying, oh, you know what, all of us are sinners, but I'm the worst. No, no, no. It's, it's like, you know how when you go and, and you try to say, no, 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 it's yours. No, 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 I'll, no, I'll pay for the meal. No, 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 I'll pay for the meal. No, no, I'll pay for the meal. And, and really, you're like, dude, somebody just pay for the meal, right? <clears throat> somebody just pay for the meal, right? And he's not doing that kind of like false humility, okay? He's actually, he actually believes that he's the foremost of sinners <clears throat> because he knew <clears throat> that he made a reservation. When he started killing Christians, he had a reservation, lakeside, at the lake of fire. But yet, Jesus said, no, you're going to come to my table, and you're going to enjoy the riches of my grace and glory, because I chose to set my heart upon you. And so he understands the gospel. That's why he says that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Jesus is the divine architect of our hearts and our lives. He is like the divine artist. He paints on our canvas. And when you look at Paul's life, you're like, man, God, you were patient. But it's not just Paul. It's us, all of us. Every single Christ follower is a work in progress. We are all canvases where the divine brush needs to be painted over. We're covered by the blood of Christ where he begins to transform us. And so that's why we still sin. You could be a Christian for 25, 30, 40 years. It's not like you ever graduate from, from needing to confess sin, right? It's not like, okay, I'm 80 now. I've been living for, with Christ for 40 or 50 years. I'm good. I'm just like Jesus. No. It's a battle. It's a battle till we go home to see him. It gets better because we mature and we learn wisdom and we learn to trust him in relationship. But when you look at a Christian's life, the reason why Christians are broken people who constantly make mistakes is that every single day we are a display to the world of the patience of Jesus Christ. The world looks at Christians and says, look at y'all. I would think Jesus would have picked a new bunch of people to call his church. But it's the very essence that we're broken that Jesus says, no, 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 they need me. That's why they're my church. Because it's in them, it's in this imperfect church that I'm going to display my mercy and grace because I'm going to display my patience through them. And because of the patience of Christ, Paul knew that his life needed, needed to give glory. You see, it says his perfect patience is an example to those who were to believe. 
So the fact that he's broken and God works on him becomes a witness to the world because the world is broken. If you want to reach people who don't know the Lord, you can't just pretend like you have it all together. They're going to be like, it's not real. We have to show that we're broken. We have to show that we're weak. And that leads to our lives bring glory to Christ, not ourselves. The reason why we are, we are imperfect and God needs to be patient to us so that it will never be people praising us. Wow, you are so patient. You are so good. You are so spiritual. No, no. You say, no, no, I'm broken, but Christ has been patient with me. And that's what continues to transform me. And point number three, then, Paul's life was aimed to bring worship. So not only was, do we see God's grace in Paul's calling and God's mercy in Paul's salvation, but in his entire life, we see God's glory. That's point number three, God's glory through Paul's praise. And this is basically a doxology. So this point is short. But remember the man who persecuted Christ and Christians, becoming the man who proclaims this wonderful theology concerning Jesus Christ. Let me show you his doctrine in his doxology, in his praise. He says, to the king of the ages, he's talking about Jesus, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. You know that hymn? The hymn that says, um, immortal, invisible, God only wise, something like that. I haven't sung it in a while. That's the idea here. The king of the ages speaks of God as the eternal king. God exists beyond the limitation of time. He's the king of the ages. He's not just the king of time. He's not just the king of yesterday or today or tomorrow. He's the king of the ages, of this age and the age to come. Immortal speaks of the fact that God cannot die. He is infinite in nature. Infinite in nature. He cannot die. He's immortal. And then it says God is invisible. God is invisible. You know why God is invisible? It's because God is spirit. He cannot be limited or contained by matter. In fact, in the Old Testament, these foreign gods were all visible. The, the foreign mindset, the, the Gentile world in the Old Testament, they saw idols as, as a gods that could be handcrafted made by the hands of men so you could see them, so that you can control them, so that you can know where you place them. If I place my idol here, it should be here in my bank account. Uh, <laughs> got you on that one, right? You're, you're like, oh, he's going to talk about a statue. No, no, I'm talking about you and me, <laughs> right? Where we put our idol, we want to see it so we can be bigger than are gods but God is invisible you can't see him you can't contain him you can't go and say hey God I just want to check that you're there okay you're there okay God. stay in your place <laughs> don't invade my life but God says no no he's invisible he's invisible because he is infinite and then Paul declares he says you're the only God monotheism right it's God in Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But the only God, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Honor, glory forever and ever. It's just not just forever, it's and ever. It's eternal, infinite. 
Amen. So you see, all testimonies of God's grace and mercy are to be directed towards the glory of God. So when you look at all of our testimonies, regardless of what your testimony is, it's going to tell of the grace of God in your life. And all of us are called to be disciple makers. So even if you aren't called like Paul to be an apostle, there's no more apostles today, but, you know, a minister, you have the calling of the Great Commission. It's by his grace that he would use someone who didn't believe in him to proclaim the message about him. Uh, And then God's mercy, we have to understand God's grace specifically in his mercy towards us when we confess that we're sinners in need of the cross, God's mercy in our lives, and your testimony should be to the praise of God's glory. So the big idea we see today is a trustworthy testimony proclaims the grace, mercy, and glory of Christ. A trustworthy testimony proclaims the grace, the mercy, and the glory of Christ. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, some of you have a testimony that most people would say, well, that's amazing. Some of you might have a testimony like Paul's, where you were really messed up, and God saved you, or if you're bad, and then you knew you need God's mercy, and he saved you. Okay? And, and that's, that's cool. Uh, some people be like, wow, what a radical transformation. But most people are enamored with those stories, while you sit there and you're like, dude, my testimony is so boring. It's not boring. If you lived your life as a pretty upstanding citizen, which means you weren't a criminal, it doesn't mean that you never lied or cheated, but you're a pretty good person. And the world kind of confirms you're a pretty good neighbor. You're not as good as State Farm, but, you know, like a good neighbor, you're pretty much always there with your oranges and, you know, whatever, (laughs) and grapefruits to give to me. Right? For you to be able to sit there and say, you know, actually, I'm a sinner, that's a miracle. You see, you can look at someone and say, hey, you killed five guys. You know you're going to hell, right? Yes, I know I'm going to hell. You, you need the Lord. That person is more likely to say, look, I might not believe in the Lord, but I know I'm evil. Okay? But if you're a pretty good person and somehow God saved you, don't you think that's a miracle? It's a miracle that you who are, quote, unquote, a good citizen would see yourself as, I need God's mercy. I need God's mercy. I need to humble myself and recognize that I need the mercy of God. That's a miracle. But you know what's the most amazing testimony to me? The one that everyone thinks is the most boringest, or that's not a word, but the the boring testimony, which is, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents loved Jesus. They read the Bible. They weren't perfect. They got mad sometimes, but they always asked for forgiveness. They shared the Bible stories when I was little. I didn't understand it at first. But my parents took me to church. I had a bunch of good aunties and uncles that taught me. At a certain point, I kind of considered the ways of the world, but I don't know what happened. I just kind of believed. I had no reason not to believe. What a boring testimony. That is an amazing testimony. I wish that was my testimony. I wish my testimony was not, you know, I came from this broken, busted home, and I didn't know how to handle myself. I made all these mistakes where there's consequences. Even to today, I have these consequences. Now, again, God is a God of renewal and redemption. But I wish that was my testimony. That is an amazing testimony that your parents actually believed in the Bible 
and trusted God and raised you and you got saved. Why would you ever be ashamed? That's a better testimony than Paul's because that's Timothy's testimony. <clears throat> Timothy, his grandmother raised him in the faith and his mother raised him in the faith. By the time Paul got to him, he had a foundation that was laid in the home and that's what made him so suitable to minister in the church. His disciple-making began in the home, and it carried over into the church. I wish that was my testimony. When I grew up, and this is real for some of you, during that season, I grew up in Hacienda Heights, California, Wilson High School, hell to thee. And during that time, all my friends, a lot of their, their dads would work in Taiwan. So they wouldn't have their dads in their life. Okay? Some of their dads worked in Hong Kong. They would send back money. I mean, my dad wasn't in Taiwan, but some of you know my testimony that I love my dad and we have a great relationship now. He wasn't in my life. You know, I, I was a single mom. Okay? So because we didn't have our dads in our lives, we kind of did what we wanted. We made a lot of mistakes. But one of the reasons, even though I was, I was kind of hard on the outside, one of the reasons why I love coming to church is because some of y'all good nerdy kids... You have what I really wanted. You guys drove those like junky minivans back then, like, like a Ford Aerostar or whatever, but you'd run out there and your dad would come. And your dad would come and sit at your basketball game. All my friends, they, I, I couldn't afford it. They had Integras and Acras and whatever. They crashed it. Their dad sent some more money. They get another one. But we didn't have our dads in our lives. So when I came to church, even though I didn't really fully believe, the one thing that I saw were fathers who cared about their, their sons. Moms who cared and believed in the Lord. That's a more powerful testimony. Because I knew Paul's testimony. I felt like I couldn't relate. But your testimony was much more powerful. I couldn't believe that an uncle who's not my dad would take me fishing and feed me and treat me like his own son. I couldn't believe the aunties and uncles would treat me like family. Church, your ordinary testimony, your amazing testimony is what creates Timothy's. So don't think just because you don't have Paul's testimony that God cannot use you because I wish that your testimony was my testimony because that's what I want for my kids. What if I went to my kid and said, I want you to be like Paul, so I want you to go and kill people. <laughs> no, I want my son to be nothing like me. And, and, and when I get mad at my son, it's because of my consequences of mistakes that I made. But God will redeem us. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to turn your heart to Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I want to pray for anyone in here today. If you're sitting in here today and you don't know Jesus, there is redemption at the cross. I want you to turn your heart to Christ. Jesus Christ, he came 2,000 years ago. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the dead. If you turn to him, if you repent, if you say, God, I need you to save me. I'm a sinner in need of your grace and mercy. 
I need you to change my heart. He will not just change your heart. He will change your life. He will give you a new life and a new purpose. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Anybody like that today? Nobody's looking except for me and the worship team. I'm always truthful. Anybody like that today? Well, amen. All of you know Christ. If you don't, please go to the Next Steps table afterwards or come and talk to me. We would love to walk you through what it means to follow Jesus and have your life changed. Church, we love you more than you know, and I love you more than you know. Churches make pastors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the powerful testimony of Paul. He is an amazing testimony of your grace. But Lord, we thank you for the testimony of ordinary people who believe in the Bible. That's why so many of us are saved. We are saved, Lord. Not just because of Paul, but but because of Uncle Paul's in our life and Uncle Saul's and Saul's (laughs) and ordinary people who love Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that would love Jesus and love people. Help us to be disciple makers who transform lives because we recognize your mercy towards us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.